Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Okay, here we go. Another episode featuring Jeff. In this episode, we start off by talking about prediction and control. It goes all over the place. It's a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. If you want to support the show, you know what to do. Links in the show description. You can go to Patreon. You can do the crypto thing. You can just tell everyone you know so that there's more audience and it feels like I have more of a reason to do this than I would otherwise. That's all I got to say. Enjoy the show. And by all means, tell me what you think about it. Okay, that's enough. Here we go. Just doing that, and then, uh, and then I should be able to see level. Oh, yeah, we're seeing level. Okay. <coughs> okay, yes, so we're here with Jeff once again. What are we talking about? We, we just went through about half a dozen topics in the pre-show segment. The, the part of the show that wasn't recorded. Right. And um, which one of those can we still remember? Right, where we try to figure <laughs> out how to narrow down the topic of conversation just a little bit. Yeah. Well, there was this, uh, one of the things that first came up was uh, the human tendency to want to be able to predict, mm-hmm. right? And... Uh, you see that in all kinds of different ways. It's sort of one of our main activity. It's kind of, yeah, we all want to know what's going to happen. We want to be able to have some sense of certainty about where everything is going. And my gut feeling about it is that that's part of the reason why we keep heading towards such a mess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's sort of like the more that we got our predictive capability, quote-unquote, together, and we're able to control, so sort of control the outcome of things, the more we kind of became responsible for what we could then predict would be a mess. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. That's just my hunch, you know, because I, apparently, according to one of, uh, one of my devoted listeners, I have a negativity bias. So, mm-hmm. so maybe... Uh, the ideas that I come up with are kind of just shaded by my my overall sense of doom, which was one of the other topics that we had right. considered. Well, I guess the, the sense of doom uh, is a good thing to pair with the topic of what can we predict. Because mm. um, I think they're tied together. Um, I think we want to be able to predict things because we want to avoid bad things happening. Yep. Um, but if that were if it were that simple, then I think there are an awful lot of bad things that have happened that we could have avoided. I, I mean, that's, I don't know if that's a funny thing to say or scary or what. Well, I mean, you could say that humanity has definitely gotten better in our predictive abilities, right? Like for for a long time, we really couldn't predict the weather particularly well. We couldn't predict the position of the planets and what have you. But certainly. We haven't been able to change whether or not bad things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, some extraordinarily bad things have happened pretty recently. And, right. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I, I think uh, I think that it's worth meditating on the uh, one of the fundamental biblical concepts of what it means to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because. 
apparently the original meaning of the terms good and evil in Hebrew meant something a little bit more like advantage and disadvantage. Mm. So in some respects, that's saying, you know, wanting to be able to know what the outcome of something is going to be. So instead of just accepting the earth the way it was, kind of wanting to be able to game the system and get as much upside without the downside. But it's sort of like once you separate the upside from the downside, it seems like what ends up happening is you get an accumulation of downside, (laughs) you know, in a kind of yin-yang theory type way of looking at it. And so we, we, by being able to refine positive vibes, we end up creating a vast reservoir of negativity that we eventually have to deal with. <laughs> Does it have to be balanced? Is there a law well, of, of negativity and positivity in our experiential set of uh, our life? Well, I mean, we have life and then we have death, right? right? So the two things are married to each other. We, we don't get one without the other. You know, I don't, I don't care what Ray Kurzweil says, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, the, I care a lot about what he says, but I don't like most of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's strange where that guy has gone, you know. I mean, I was a huge fan of the Kurzweil synthesizer. It was, you know, kind of a world that I occupied for a long time and was extremely impressed with it when it first came out. And so I was really kind of amazed to discover that this guy wasn't dedicated to building synthesizers. He had other things in mind. So when he ended up becoming this uh, transhumanist icon, I was kind of horrified <laughs> and amazed. But uh, there you go, another topic. Right. It's a it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit amazing that someone who's so intelligent um, and talks about spirituality and technology uh, in the same sort of vein doesn't really give any evidence of ever having had a spiritual experience in any of the ways he talks um, or any of the references that I've seen him make. Um, Well, I think like, you know, actual tangible evidence of spiritual experience is pretty uh, hard to come by with anyone. You know, I think uh, it's kind of a very, very, it's probably like one of the most personal aspects of existence. It's an entirely internal process and mm-hmm, it usually gets all mangled once you try to express it so you know <laughs> that's true it does seem i mean maybe he had a spiritual impulse at one point you know and this happens i think quite often is someone experiences something let's say out of the ordinary and um and it inspires them in a certain direction and maybe that was like the last time they experienced anything from that domain and they just kind of continue on uh as if you know, the material world were the main thing again, mm-hmm. you know, because that seems to be the basic dialectic is between kind of the quote unquote spiritual world and the quote unquote material world. And what's meant by that, you know, is, mm-hmm. is uh, I mean, in some way, I think it's self-evident, you know, because you can think about your uh, existence in a material sense. So you can be all preoccupied with how are things going to turn out? How am I going to get what I want? Which is this whole predictive concern, right? Mm -hmm. Future, future, future. How do I deal with this physical body and all the various physical things that I have to deal with and all the others and everything like that? And that can completely consume one's attention, right? But there is this other realm that's available to all of us that has nothing to do with any of that. And so (laughs) let's just call that the spiritual realm, Right, the thing that isn't where you know where our consciousness and our senses are not 
just completely engaged in trying to figure out how to make this physical thing work. Mm-hmm. Because I think even if you don't have a spiritual um, orientation, you can notice having dealing with dealing with the material world over and over again that all of our best efforts are, uh, you know, partially successful at best, you know, and that quite often the things that we're hoping to bring about end up not happening the way we wanted to. There's all sorts of unintended consequences and just it, things can go horribly wrong really quickly even when you're really doing your best. So uh, so the material world has a tendency to be very slippery and it doesn't really respond in entirely predictable ways. And that's why we're frustrated and that's why we want to be able to predict and be able to ideally get a better fix on it. But that seems like a futile effort, you know, and and many of the spiritual traditions, like, you know, the Bible is just one, but there's many that say that, you know, the material world is the world of illusion. And and we're always going to be frustrated in our ability to grasp it and get control over it. And so maybe really, you know, we are being asked to spend more time in the spiritual domain, you know, I'd say, like, in some senses, that's pretty much what this podcast is about. Right. You know, it's a, it's a negotiation because as long as we're in a physical body, this is what's going on, mm-hmm. you know? And we're not going to be around much longer unless we learn to become a breathitarian if we don't deal with the physical world <laughs> in some way or another. So, so it's always going to be a component as long as we're living and breathing, but, uh, but we really – are missing out on an incredible opportunity in life if all we do is think about the material. Um, okay, so and, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us. It leaves <laughs> us with a with a, a picture of what's going on now in, mm. in terms of the topics we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The the way our society works, and particularly the aspect of it that we call capitalism keeps people struggling to meet their material, physical needs. Not all of them, but yeah. most of the people are caught in that material place where they have to focus on meeting their material needs. Yeah. And because so many people are in really trapped, absolutely trapped by fear of death, literally, literally the experience of having to die because you don't have enough, Right is something that large portions of the planet are are still going through on a daily basis. When for many many decades we've had more than enough stuff for everybody to live a different style of conscious life, wherein they don't have to struggle for their material existence. Well, I guess that that you know to some extent is debatable depending upon the quality of the stuff we're talking about. Oh, we, that would so, be very highly debated by most politicians and people who have a stake in the system well, as it is. Before we, get too far, to but yeah, but before we get too far from it, I would say that it's really not just the capitalist system that, that has those properties to it. That you right. know, Most systems of governance, um, people are pretty well uh, involved in just making it from day to day. That's the primary thing going on, Mm -hmm. you know? So all the way from, although they, they do say that back in the hunter gatherer days, we spent an average of what, three or four hours a day trying to meet our needs, you know? So who knows? I mean, you know, 
there were probably some periods where you would have to spend an awful lot and that you wouldn't be able to make your needs given whatever, you know, even your best efforts depending upon the the uh, environmental conditions of the t- at the time, you know, what the weather had been like, et cetera, all kinds of different periods of time. But, but yeah, I think probably in, in human history there have been some periods where people really didn't have to struggle as hard as we do now. And then the question of, okay, well, could something like Andrew Yang's um, universal basic income work? You know, because basically for $1,000 a month, as long as the currency doesn't collapse, um, a, a few adults could get together and have a decent household and, and live relatively comfortably instead of being constantly fearful that they're going to be living in the street. And so it seems like a no-brainer that, you know, we really, particularly in the face of, uh, as Yang points out, automation and uh, artificial intelligence, which is likely to displace jobs across the job market, not just in the lower-paying jobs, but even like lawyers and uh, and doctors could be replaced by many of these devices. So it seems only reasonable that our society is going to have to find some way of being able to take care of even the least of us, as they would say in the old days, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone should have at least a little bit of the pie and, um, you know, what's wrong with that? Why, why can't we do that? That seems like a good – I mean I know that there are some good economic reasons why we can't – I'm going to put can't in the air quotes there – can't do that. You know, there's like a kind of practical level where you have to understand how capital works, right? So it's sort of like, yeah, well, they do have that power and that money and they can take that power and that money and put it where they want to. So are we in a position right now where we could say, no, 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 you can't take all your money out of a country that decides to give everyone $1,000 a month? It's like we don't really have that power. You know, that's the problem with with left-leaning governments is they get into power and then the people who have the money and the power say, oh, okay, have a good time. We're taking our business elsewhere. (laughs) And the next thing you know, like everyone hates that left-wing government because they've got nothing. It's like what happened in Greece, right? They got they, they they Greece in the middle of their crisis. They elect a left wing government. It's like oh, finally we got some left wingers in it. And the next thing you know, that government is uh, imposing austerity on the country because they have no option. They well, they, and then you have a rise of an even more intense right wing. Th- so. This is something that has confused me, and I think it's maybe my own lack of will to look into the details of how horrific it is. But has anybody just ever told the IMF to go screw themselves? Like why? Well, I mean, this is like a major problem in the world. The way the World Bank works, the way the IMF works, the yeah. way the international community of governance works—it's actually not working for most of the human beings on the planet. It's like a yeah. really violent, oppressive system that just keeps running around to different countries and extracting resources at a breathtaking pace and leaving destruction in its wake. Pretty much. I mean, it's the John John Perkins story. <laughs> so, right? what well, at what point does a country like, say, Greece, say, you know what, you tricked us into all these terrible situations, and you're going to destroy the people's lives in this country where you're trying to extract all this extra energy? Yeah, and we're just not going to give it to you because you don't need it, and we do. Yeah, I think that's basically. <laughs> I think that's what they did in Iceland. 
Okay. You know, I, Iceland seem to have worked out quite well. It for actually does seem to work out quite well. Yeah, <laughs> and I think they're all also one of the very few nations that actually went after the bankers responsible for making these really screwed up deals with you know the IMF and their ilk. You know, I'm not an expert in all of that, but I've seen enough information that I, I think you're absolutely right. That's that's an organization that uh, extends loans that cause incredible hardship for the people of a nation, basically disenfranchises them from their own country, and uh, allows resource extraction at cut-rate discounts for international corporations. It's just a freaking nightmare. But again, you know, maybe there's some information I don't really fully have on that, but it seems like that is is pretty much the game. And uh, I think a good book on that subject, one that I did read, is John Perkins' Confession of an Economic Hitman. He pretty much lays it out there. So mm-hmm. I have yet to see anyone criticize his picture of things in a in a compelling or, or a reasonable way. So it does seem like that. But it's like, okay, ha- so we have maybe one nation that said, no, thank you, IMF and, and uh, everything that goes along with you. But that doesn't stop the IMF from continuing to do what it does, right? So it's this agency out there that's continuing to wreck damage, you know? What's and the critical resource that we need from Iceland? Because I know in Bolivia they have lithium. Huh. Lots of it. That's like a good most point, yeah. You know, these other places, um, I mean, we, we've the United States has not been successful in throwing over the government in Venezuela, but we know what they have that that we want. Right. Um, I mean, we're hanging around in Syria after creating a mess there to protect a couple of broken oil wells that have a fraction of the world's oil. No, but that's not, still what we're still what we're saying well, we're doing. That's like, what would have been in the past <clears throat> looked upon as um, a motivation that I think we would have disparaged is now just being casually thrown out as an excuse for something even worse that we're doing. <laughs> well, I think Syria is probably more of a political thing having to do with Iran, but I don't know. It's yeah. it's complicated. That's what I'm getting at. I mean, we're, we're now using, oh, we're just here to steal the oil yeah, as no. the excuse to do even it's more amazing that, that things. That now is the excuse. <laughs> That's now an acceptable yeah. excuse. It we're used to be. To take their oil and make it ours. <laughs> it used to be that they would say, like, oh, we, 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 we're trying to bring democracy to right. the rest of the, you know, trying to free people and stuff like that. Now, <laughs> Now at least they're saying, well, yeah, we're just here to steal the oil. But now even that's a lie. You're probably right. I don't know. I mean, Iceland, as far as I know, it's like uh, you got Bjork and some really good lamb. I don't know what else comes out of Iceland. They're geothermal system, but that's not an export. So I think it just is, was able to happen there because it's small enough and isolated enough. But if... Uh, say the the yellow vests and the black vests in France get together and just say, you know what, en- enough is enough. We're going to do this right here in France, right? And we're going to tell the, we're going to show the world how it's done again. This time, though, we're not going to get out the guillotines. We're going to do it in a very intellectual, compassionate sort of way. But we're not going to participate anymore. But what if the French did it? You know, <laughs> they're right there in the middle of Europe. I mean, they're sort of trying to, you know, it's not it's not about that issue, but on some level, the people there are making a stand, and they're just getting beaten down, mm-hmm. you know? So I think you're right that, that, you know, the reason why, well, there's another factor, too, which is that Iceland has one of the most uh, genetically 
similar populations in the world. Oh, so like everyone is can relate to each other. They're all kind of coming from the same place, you could say. Right. right? So when the police are are beating up the protesters in Iceland, they're literally beating up their cousins. Yeah, I mean, it's like I think people have a sense of common identity there. Right. Like they're all really, you know, and here in the United States, where we've lost the sense of what it means to be like that everyone here is an American, you know. Right. Like, so They're pushing really hard on that one, that certain people should be allowed to be Americans and others should not. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> how, would the Iceland, how, how would the Icelandics feel if, you know, all of a sudden the idea was proposed that anyone could be an Icelander? Mm. Just show up and, and you can be part of our society too. I think they'd be like, eh, no. Right. No, know. we won't go for that. I mean, I know most, most nations won't go for that. Yeah. You know, and and I, I think most populations wouldn't be comfortable with that. Yeah. And there's some good reasons well, for that. Well, that leaves us with a big problem because there's lots of places where people are not going to be able to live, where lots and lots of people have been living. It's it's starting, it's happening now, and it's creating a big problem. What happens when it's ten times this large? Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the, the dislocated populations are it, – it, it's really hard to imagine how that problem isn't going to get worse and worse. Well, and <clears throat> I think all of these problems are are just going to pinch the human way of life on planet Earth from all directions until we have to finally make some real assessments that actually lead to material changes in the way we operate. Um, otherwise, if you if you just if you take the the prediction, <laughs> yeah, kind of. You take what we're take the energy we have now and the direction that we're headed, and you make some predictions. Uh, we're not as a species going to survive the wheels we've set in motion. Well, certainly not as we have been surviving. Not no, certainly not. So one of the biggest problems is that when you have a system that gets overextended and kind of long in the tooth and weak in various ways and yet is still basically the way the world works. You know, particularly because there's so much resistance to change, it gets incredibly difficult to to modify it. You know, almost just on the basis of inertia and resistance and uh, the hostility that comes up whenever real change is proposed, let alone implemented, right? And then all of the kind of dirty tricks that can be played against those who are trying to make uh, some sort of change occur. All of that basically means that you get this residue of the system that kind of clings on for the last remaining breath. And, and because of that, you don't get a soft landing. You tend to get a collapse, you know, if there was a bit more of a cooperative, you know, incremental way of going about changing a system, that seems like, you know, in some ways maybe democracy is a little better at that type of thing than a lot of other systems because, you know, for so long as we have civil discourse and, you know, anyone can enter the political arena and you can have this potential for various movements that can get a degree of political foothold and 
make some change, you know, and, and obviously that has been eroded to a large extent. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not sure if I would really try to make any of these claims and stand behind them. Well, I mean, the, <laughs> you know, we have some candidates who have a fair amount of of political power. I mean, Sanders is a, a moderate socialist, for instance, and I'm not a fan of, of his ideas in general, but he does represent a change to the system, and the system is rejecting him. You know, even his own part. I mean, he he was only recently, I guess, a Democrat. So I guess that's part of the problem they have with him. But uh, he's probably the most popular candidate they have. But even someone like, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, who doesn't have nearly as many people as Sanders, she has, I think, had an impact on the political spectrum. She's got a strong uh, message. And I think it's you know, it's a testament that there's still some residue of democracy happening here that she can get, you know, as much of a voice as she has. I think that she's uh, unfairly suppressed. I think so is Sanders and so is Yang. And so are basically all the interesting, you know, potentially transformative political figures on the right as well, you know. Mm. So uh, it's unfortunate that the system uh, does that, but at least these people aren't like, thrown into prison or just outright executed, which is what happens in other nations. You know, so there is some degree of of political freedom here still, and I don't know that it's going to last, but uh, it is what I think makes it possible that our system could have uh, a transformative process that would eventually lead to a different way of doing things that wouldn't just be uh, an outright collapse. But so let me ask you a provocative question. It's not question. looking great let's, for that. Let's say I'm, I'm, I'm kind of warm to your idea. Here. Okay. What would be the turning point in your idea where you would have to say, mm, maybe not? <clears throat> like oh. What would have to happen for you to kind of to- head in the other direction on that and be like, you know what? All of this guise of democracy and, and public discourse and all that, it's actually just a big dog and pony show, and we are as controlled as they are in Bolivia uh, or, or you know Brazil. Our government is just a different flavor of the same thing. Like what – because what I see so, is, is that the story that you present of our democracy maybe being a little better and having more of a mm-hmm. shot could also be a situation where – they're just a lot better at making it look like that, and True. we're a lot more gullible about believing that. No, you're absolutely right. You know, but on <laughs> I'm the just other- curious how you make those distinctions. <clears throat> well, it's it is tricky, and I think part of it is that I'm unwilling to uh, really make a prediction because I don't think that a prediction <laughs> is is a useful tool. I think that fundamentally we're operating in the realm of ideas here, and that ideas do fundamentally change things. If you can get an idea from one brain into another, uh-huh. <laughs> and it doesn't just die there, and it kind of continues to to move from brain to brain, you know, who knows what can happen? That's that's really kind of my basic uh, mode of operation. So, you know, I, I also believe that. Uh, you don't know, even when things look really terrible, whether or not they're going to be able to pull off their evil schemes. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, yeah, I could see like we get to the point where, you know, everyone has the chip implanted in the back of their head and it's all like social credits and every like wrong thought that you make uh, uh, is a deduct something from your social credit score. (laughs) I'd be more tempted to say, yeah, it's not looking good. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, and on some level, that is kind of a system that's, you know, it's, it seems like it's more integrated into Chinese society right now. But it's, you know, it's on its way here in one way or another. But I, I, I do think that like all plans – uh, they can go awry, and there can be unintended consequences that even the most brilliant Doctor Evil can't quite, uh, you know, take into consideration. You know, that they have the same problem that we all have when it comes to predicting the future, and when they're trying to implement whatever system of control it is that they want, it's like yeah, the material world is what it is. It doesn't want to be controlled, you know. And I think that, you know. I do think that fundamentally we are heading towards human societies that are going to be more tightly controlled just because of our populations. And I think, you know, unless that, unless that changes, I don't see how we're going to be able to continue as, as a densely populated species on the planet. But, you know, whether or not that means that people are going to have a worse experience of life and are going to have to struggle even more in order to make it from day to day, I don't know. You know, not necessarily. It could be that, you know, you would have a more efficient level playing field if you have a system that isn't completely corrupt and that isn't just serving oligarchs. You could potentially design a system that would be more equitable and and uh, and allow a, a basic level of existence for people that would be less painful and miserable and and fear laden but i don't know you know i'm i'm not <coughs> someone who's going to say i think you know it's in god's hands you know we don't know we're the best we can do is to try to understand things and and basically do what we got to do you know deal with our own uh world as best we can and just try to understand a broad picture and i, I don't think there's much more that we can do I'm not even sure that it's worth trying to start some kind of a organization or movement or to advocate for anything in particular. Uh, I, I kind of just think it's like <laughs> it's mainly understand things as best you can, uh, love God, do the best you can in your life and with the people in your life, and and that's kind of the recipe forward because because of this unintended consequence thing. You know, we're gonna have to deal with all the unintended consequences and and the basic model that I think we're in is we have a, a late stage global system going on right now and it's becoming increasingly chaotic and so the last thing that a, a chaotic system needs is more stuff going on you know if you're in a very chaotic situation making a lot of dramatic gestures and trying to get something to happen just adds to the chaos so that's why I, I, I don't really think that it makes a hell of a lot of sense to do much right now. You know, it's like what Slavoj Žižek says, you know, there's that, there's that old phrase of like, don't just sit there, do something, right? right? He says, don't just do something, sit there. And what he means is think, you know, yeah. sit there and think. Let's sit here and look at what's going on instead of just being reactive and like running around yelling and screaming about shit that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I just went off there. <laughs> no, it's good. I, I think I think not understanding um, is a manufactured situation, hmm. and um, lots of people don't understand lots of things. Not because they're difficult to understand, but because 
other people want it that way. I think there's that, but I also think that there's not that many people really that interested in understanding shit. Well, right, because they are actually caught in that realm where they're interested in making their material needs. Yeah, um, or distractions. Yes, you know that, that right. So we have all of those things. Yeah. Um, what do you What do you think that What do you think the people that have money and power now are predicting is going to happen? Because <laughs> whether we, whether we can make predictions or not, maybe we can get inside the heads of people that have a lot of money and a <laughs> lot of power and have been running this scheme for decades. They've got to be wondering what's going to happen, I think, don't you? Well, okay. I saw an interview recently uh-huh. with a woman who was uh, the consort of Timothy Leary. I, I forgot her name. And right. This is very typical of me. I can never remember the details of what it is that I'm talking about, but it doesn't really matter, right? The important thing is the idea. Okay. So she is someone who came from an incredibly wealthy family, and she said a number of things that are really important. One thing she said is that the people at the top, they don't pay taxes, like taxes are for other like they are at a at a level that's just like you know it's left the uh, the stadium it's mm-hmm. completely like living above everything else nobody's even looking for them to pay taxes yeah it's like not even going to yeah. be a consideration you know they're just way beyond that so and she says it's like we're talking about a number that's somewhere in like the mid hundreds something the uh-huh. people who are operating on that kind of a level and she says that she was raised in a way where with such cunning and such coldness that was specifically designed to extinguish her empathy because if she did retain any empathy for humanity in general, she would not be suitable to protect what it is that they had acquired. Uh-huh. So basically, like, there is a, a kind of dehumanizing process built into the super elites, let's say, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a requirement for them in order to maintain their position, right? So what are they thinking? Like, and that, that gives you kind of a sense of the psychology of, let's say, some, maybe not mm-hmm. all, but some, and pr- probably the ones who protect whatever it is that they have the best have that kind of a mindset. Mm-hmm. So... What are those kind of people thinking about the future, and what are, what is their attitude towards uh, global issues? You know, it's it's probably what we would imagine Doctor Evil would be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, Doctor Evil's a pretty good model for that kind of a mindset. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe Doctor Evil loves his cat, right? right? But beyond that, probably even his own family members are are. Uh, hostile agents to him, right? Right. And, and that, I guess, is, has always been the lot of those at the top. You know, like a king has no friends, only subjects, right? right. So it goes with the territory. That's why they say power corrupts, right? So then the question is, well, does being in that kind of a position make it more or less likely that one is able to um, execute plans successfully. And I, I don't know. I, I guess you could say that 
empathy might be the kind of thing that would get in the way of a lot of plans. So maybe some of the obstacles that, that you know, those of us who do retain some degree of empathy, some of the obstacles that we have when we're trying to do things are not obstacles for them. Right. It's an, <clears throat> it sets up an interesting situation where we potentially have a group. Um, it doesn't matter if it's one person or a group of people, but we have a great deal of power concentrated. Call it in the form of money. Call it in the form of political strings that can be pulled. It's all. It all comes back down to this concept of power, which is that when you know two entities disagree, the one with more power is the one that ends up getting their way. And so pretty much, right? So there's there's been this exercise of of power over um, human beings that, in my humble opinion is definitely lacking of a certain sense of empathy or compassion. Absolutely. And that's, that's a defining characteristic of uh, how power is being wielded on the planet. Mm-hmm. And so it paints this picture of human beings that are psychopathic, or at least, as you say, conditioned out of empathy and compassion. Um, I think technically there's a term for that, and it's called psychopathy. Um, mm mm-hmm which I think is also a natural condition that people can be born into. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may just be that people who are in power, who are inbreeding, are more likely to end up with a psychopathic mindset because well, of I genetics. Think, but I don't know. That, that's kind of a moot point after a certain point. It's, well, it would be interesting to see if you could make a distinction between what's psychopathic and what's just like very strong in-group preference. Because mm-hmm. I know that... You know, traditionally, cultures would have a tendency to demonize other cultures, particularly ones that they had been in conflict for, you know, with for a long time. And so they might have the tendency to behave very uh, aggressively towards people from these other cultures that they perceived as being an enemy, something along those lines. And so, you know, people can be incredibly vicious externally, incredibly uh, kind internally when it comes to uh, strong cultural, mm-hmm. you know, traditions, something along those lines. Uh, so I wonder if, you know, that's not kind of just a similar thing that's happening uh, on an economic level. It's not so much cultural, but you get these kind of economic groups that that form on a basis not so much of... Uh, of um, of genetic, you know, you know, genetic identity, but more their position with, you know, class, basically, right? Right. So it seems like there's something along those lines, you know, that it's a state of a it's a state of consciousness identity, if you want to look at it that way, where they have this state of consciousness that allows them to be so predatory and lacking of compassion <laughs> that they can play in that that group. Well, I guess, you know, <laughs> basically all, all identity is fundamentally a state of consciousness, right? Right. Because it's just what you're paying attention to in, in the other and in yourself that is the formation of an identity. Because you could always, you know, pay attention to some other aspects of the people who you consider to be this or that identity or yourself. Mm-hmm. You can always reframe yourself in other, other ways, you know, it's it's difficult to do that if you're really committed to an identity, but uh-huh. um, but certainly once you recognize that there are things about yourself that you hadn't yet 
uh, incorporated into your identity, there's an opportunity right there to reconsider your identity. And, and similarly with others, when you start to notice that they don't always behave according to the idea that you have of them, that's a pretty good opportunity to think about reconsider the identity that you've ascribed to them. Are these people just so trapped in their identity that they're never, they're never going to... I mean, it comes back to having spiritual experiences too, doesn't it? I mean, that's... Potentially, but I think sometimes people choose an identity much in the same way that an organism chooses an a, a ecological niche. <laughs> you know, because it just kind of works. You know, it's like there's there's a place where I can hang out and do my thing and I've got my group. Uh-huh. And, you know, it, it it's like I can identify with that in the sense that it will work for me. And I think some people will have a very lively, um, broad kind of spiritual domain within that context. And they've just associated it with a particular identity, you know, and... Others, maybe not so much in, uh, of a spiritual access there. I think that would probably still be somewhat of a standout type of, you know, uh, um, not a very common phenomena would be my guess. But um, but I think that that does happen. Uh, and in some ways, you know, humanity is like a microcosm of the ecosystem, you know, we've got all different kinds of people doing all different kinds of things, and they're thinking all different kinds of things, and they see themselves in all kinds of different ways, right. you know? And a lot of other species are, you know, they're kind of like one-trick ponies. They do a certain thing, you know? Right, right. A little bit of variation around the edges, right. but, you know, we're really like a, a whole ecosphere in ourselves. It's an interesting model. If you were to model all of our different activities and personality types as if they were, you know, different species in a broad ecosystem with different niches in it. It would be very interesting to study, okay, so what is this niche of the most powerful humans? What's it look like? I don't even know if we know who these people are. Like I imagine the royal family might make it into that category. I don't necessarily imagine any of the billionaires that we're told about are even there or not. I don't know. Yeah, they just even... seem like a bunch of jerks that somebody should just stab them with a pencil when they walk down the street and <laughs> call it a day. Well, none of these people can walk down the street. You know, that's like well, beyond. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, no, they, 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 there's no way, right? Or if yeah. they do, they would have to completely, you know, be cloaked and right. it would be like an operation. If I saw Jeff Bezos and Henry Kissinger walking down the street, I wouldn't know which one to kick in the Yeah, nose. I mean, I wonder if, I mean, of course, Bezos is another person we know about, right? Uh-huh. And he is, I think actually he just got edged out by Bill Gates. He's the heard, richest I, man in the world. I heard that. I was like, like, I thought Bill Gates was off the list a long time ago. He's back. Well, that guy's a tough, you know, he's not going to be taken down that easily. So, you know, Jeff and Bill are going to have a duke out and everyone knows their names so richest people in the world? Really? I don't know. I'm not sure. I wouldn't be so sure. My guess is that that's kind of I think they pay a, taxes. Don't they? I think that, that they would be... At least someone's looking for them to pay taxes. I, I think they would be in serious trouble if they didn't. I'm sure that that's monitored. You know what I mean? You know, I, I don't so, think they're part of that club of people I don't think that they're part don't of that club. even pay taxes. So if that's I want to know case, who those people are. I don't. <laughs> I don't know who they are. I want are. to stay as far away from them as possible. <laughs> I don't want to know anything about them. <laughs> Yeah. But they're they're really screwing it up for the rest of us. And that's I just guess. my opinion, but I, when <laughs> I don't even know that. I honestly you, can't say for sure that that's the case. 
you know, uh, when it comes to the the, you know, how bad things could be, right? The bottom is so low of how bad things could be. So if they have anything to do with what's going on now, you know, let's at least let's just give them a C, a C minus. Let's say C minus, you know, because. You know, we could have already had a major global nuclear war, right? Only because of their their previous machinations. I don't know. Who knows what the hell they're thinking? We don't know. We really don't know. (laughs) You know, we could say, like, basically they're just self-serving. But self-serving also means that they don't want to live in a nuclear wasteland. It also means that they don't want, like, massive numbers of people destroying everything by rioting. You know, they, why would that's, they? That's the situation that's been created, though, and they're the ones who have but the power. But we're not, we're, I mean, <laughs> we're. They you know, have the power. There's a little <laughs> bit of that, but okay, but also, first of all, the power isn't, there is no absolute power except for God, let's say. And even even there, there's a good question as to what absolute power means in, in a divine spiritual concept, right? Because. You could say that of all power there is in the universe, that would be something that divine consciousness would be able to wield, but it may also not produce exactly what that consciousness wants, and it may also have some really rough consequences for everything when it gets mobilized. So that's why they say God is slow to anger. And also, if you look in the Bible, it's like, oh, yeah, God set it up this way, but then it kind of turned out different. You know, like, that's a theme that happens over and over and over and over again. So, it's pretty clear that we're not really talking about absolute power in in the complete way. And so, okay, back to Earth, right? The elites, the the creme of the creme elites or, or the scum of the scum elites, if you like, mm-hmm. Uh Whatever power they have, I think, is subject to the same kind of limitations. You know, they probably are able to make a whole bunch of shit happen. But whether or not that produces the desired results is a whole other story. And it's still a a limit to what power can do in the material world. It's just built into the fabric of existence. Mm -hmm. So I'm really not 100%... Uh, you know, uh, on board with the idea that everything is these people's fault and, you know, they have some kind of an evil plan to fuck up the the entire planet. It's like, you know, we're kind of all involved in this project of fucking up the planet. It's really, it's a cooperative venture. You know, you could say that, I'm sorry, I'm going on and on, but okay, last little bit, right? Uh, Lynn Margulis, uh, microbiologist, she makes the point that the greatest catastrophe in the history of life on Earth was when the single-celled anaerobic bacteria produced so much oxygen that it became toxic to them, and they basically like choked themselves out, and that's what created, uh, well, the air that we're breathing and also eukaryotic cells where you'd have mitochondria inside of a cell. So it's sort of like there is this basic property of life con- creating the conditions that suck for it. That's just... That's the way it goes. It's thermodynamic. It's like we eat and we shit, right? So the shit is what we don't want, and all organisms are producing this effluence that they don't want to be around all the time. And so when we become a densely populated species, we're producing all kinds of shit. It's not just our own biological shit. It's like all the waste product from our manufacturing and all the like weird kind of 
fucked up ideas. Like there's a kind of shit in the head type of thing. Uh-huh. That, you know, it's like <laughs> it's just there's so much shit, and and right. the shit eventually kind of penetrates into the organism that's trying to get rid of it because there's so much of it. That's that's the pattern. That's what happened <laughs> in that first that first like you know bacterial cell situation that that um, Margulis points out. And we're in the same situation now. Like all this weird crap is entering the food supply and like all the air that we breathe has like little plastic particles and a little bit of radiation here and there. And it's just like all the shit that we produced is kind of coming back to us now. And it's just that's the way life is. You know, is that is that the fault of the elites? I mean, mm, I yes and no. At a you certain know? point, it's, it's, it's – I like your analogy a lot. But I think at a certain point um, – we don't have to put ourselves in the category of the same natural order because we've taken ourselves out of it. Um, we can see well, we, we can we, see the accumulation of shit and know that we got to get away from it. We can see what's ha- we can those those microbes didn't necessarily know to get together and say, hey, look, if we all keep shitting all this oxygen, we're going to all die. We're in a different situation. We well, can see. That we've known about the petroleum link to climate change for a long time, for like my whole life. You know what I mean? And the people that were profiting from it knew about it the whole time. And a lot of other people knew it was a bad thing to do. Like we've known that the nuclear thing was a dangerous thing the whole time. So I feel like we need to put ourselves into a slightly different category and say we might be wise enough to see what's going on. And not just have it happen to us. All right, I'm going to ch- I'm going to challenge that idea if you don't mind. So, otherwise, um, we're just waiting around for for the world, to, the, the universe, to just happen to us. Well, okay. So, what would have happened if we had, you know, completely, you know, if we had retooled our industrial economy at the point where we realized that fossil fuels were becoming a real problem, right? Because you know. It's like most systems. You have this this uh, infrastructure that's built, and there's sort of like a balance of power that's that's uh, built upon that. And yeah, I'm sure that greed played a big role in there as well, and self interest and all that kind of stuff. But um, you know, we've we've gotten to the point now where I think most of the of the serious analysts in the field say, "Hey, you know what? Renewable energy is a great idea, but it's not going to fucking work. It just on a uh, on a return on investment level." You know, you cannot get the kind of energy necessary to run the 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 civilization that we have using renewable okay. energy. Now, do I trust them? You know, okay, let's say when I listen to people talking about their area of expertise, I rely on a degree of gut instinct. So there was a recent interview on Chris Martinson's show that I should remember the name of and I can't. And it was with a, with a guy who's a geologist who lives in, uh, in Louisiana. Martinson's show is called Peak Prosperity. He's a guy who's been in the energy industry for a long time. And he has a lot of, I, I would say, just basic nuts and bolts kinds of, of way of analyzing things. And it sounds like he's not one of these guys who's trying to push some kind of a, of a scheme. So to me, he was a credible, a credible witness, you could say. And, and yeah, he's one of these guys, like many of them that I've heard, who's basically like when you crunch the numbers – Renewables aren't going to do it. So, okay, 
you know, even back in the 70s and 80s where they started to be aware of the kinds of problems that we were going to see with fossil fuels, we didn't have the, the renewable energy developed to the point we have it now. You know, so, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that at that point it would have been like, okay, we've got this system and it has to keep running because if it doesn't, it's like not only are we all screwed, but like pretty much everyone in the whole system is screwed. And it's completely dependent upon the stuff that we're producing, right? The oil. I mean, one of the things that this guy said that was really interesting is that oil has always been a loss proposition. Like people talk about how uh, fracking, it always, you know, it's you're operating at a loss, right? He says, you know what? When it really comes down to it, uh, the whole industry has always been operating at a loss. <laughs> it's like hard to believe, right? But I guess I have to understand the context in which that makes sense because you can point to you can point to profits. I mean, the the, the whole point of money is as a placeholder for energy, right? Sort of, yeah. Or Although value, I've, you know, something of that something is of value. Well, you could say that it's 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 some kind of a energy conversion, like some some form of energy has been turned into it. Although I heard yeah. one person say that what it really is is land development is is a good way of thinking of it. But sure, basically, you could also think of it as future labor. Because if you have money and I don't, and I need that money to buy food, then you then then you owe my future own my future labor. Mm. Yeah, but I guess it doesn't. That doesn't describe where it comes from, right? Because money. Yeah, like how how is the money – I guess you could say it's the labor necessary in order to extract the resource from the land. So there's there's that element of it. You could also think of it just as a placeholder of, of power. Yeah. You know, of, you know and it, it doesn't – power is, is a rough word. Energy is nonspecific but also points in the right direction. But it's, well, like energy is, it can be potential, right? So energy right. is like a, a reserve that could be used but isn't necessarily being used. So if we think of, of money as, as a potential energy well, if you will. Yeah, um, okay, maybe, sure. Right? Because, you know, you, you lift a ball off of the earth, it has some potential energy, you let it go and it falls. Right. Right? Um, if I have some, if I have some money and I want to get something done, and you don't have money, then yeah, you I can, can use you the can money let that money go. Done, and it turns into it turns into activity. Right? Yeah, and it just keeps going around, and we just keep doing our activities. But what we're saying is that the activity of having drawn that oil out of the ground and turned it into something that we can all burn, yeah, um, has produced all of this potential energy yeah, that is now in the hands of a few individuals and corporations. So what, it, what that says to me is that they now have the power to tell us what to do because they did that. Well, okay, so what's power <laughs> then? You know, like if we're going to make... if we're well, gonna if make I don't have food and they, I need that money to get food, then they have the power to tell me how to work and what to do to get that money to get that food. That's basically how our society works unless we're one of the 1% of the planet that's sort of living in an indigenous fashion in some corner of the jungle. Yeah, I mean, you can't really argue with that. Without a doubt, the, the monetary system is a system of control, a system of power, without a doubt. So the, the, let's let's go back for a second, because mm. I, I interrupted you, but I want to bring you back on track. Okay, good, because I, I can't remember where we way, are. The, the whole concept of... Um, <clears throat> oh, let's see where we were talking about. Oh, the renewable energy. Oh, yeah. 
not being enough to run our system. If you were to take a step back and say, well, wait a second, why is that the premise? Why is that the bar we have to get over? Because our current system, we're doing a lot of things that aren't actually benefiting us materially. Oh, I mean, it's absolutely true. Like, if we, you look at we how much waste. we spend on the military-industrial complex and put how much energy, human energy, is put into that, if we weren't required to build the machinery of our destruction <laughs> to the tunes of billions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Yeah, I think that, that then w- would <laughs> the leap of faith necessary in order to dismantle the military thing at this particular point in time, it's like I could have envisioned that maybe after the fall of the wall in Berlin, you know, uh-huh. like when the Soviet Union collapsed, it seemed like that was our golden moment. That was the moment and to step back from the brink. it didn't <laughs> happen. It did not happen, and there's been really an escalation of of military it's not just the united states you know around the world people are arming themselves pretty freaking hardcore so i don't see how that would work at this point but i mean ideal it's sort of like the gun thing it's like yeah ideally this would be a world without guns but there's so many freaking guns you know it's like that is actually the world we're living in pragmatically speaking how how are you going to deal with a world bristling with weapons without any weapons? It's like, you know, right. no, okay. We have some seriously difficult challenges. And one of the challenges we're confronted with right now is that we're already at 56 minutes and 35 seconds. And I don't want to have to edit this into two pieces again. You know, it's it's just painful, <laughs> and I, I really think that going over an hour is is really too much. It's just amazing that anyone listens to these as they are. So we've done about an hour now. Is can we find some way to sew this up? Is there some kind of thematic flourish we can do here, or should we just plunge ourselves into a room of reverb, and it, you know, with at the at the loss of having anything else to offer on the subject, just make some ambient sounds and hope for the best. Yeah, I, I think that uh, we've we've come um, a little ways on a conversation that's going to have to have many installations, and it's it's important for everybody to start having conversations that mean something. Amen. Yeah, we're not going to run out of things to talk about for a long time to come. No, because we don't know what's going on. No, no idea. We really don't. And that's as it should be. I, I guess. I don't know. <clears throat> I mean, I'd like, I'd like there to be mystery, but I think that's what great mystery is there for, in that we have a million years of being able to work on that one without necessarily coming to a conclusion. But how to, like not destroy the planet and enslave all the people in the process, I feel like we ought to be able to get, we ought to be well, able to figure that one out. It's not, <laughs> it's not totally destroyed yet. It's not totally destroyed <laughs> and we're not totally enslaved. Um, um, but it, it looks like that's the effort that's underway. From, well, but maybe that's just what it looks like. Exactly. Maybe that's know. the kind of pressure that we need to actually develop 
to our next stage. It's quite possible. So it may be that actually the, the threat of of being obliterated is what drives us to innovate. You know? So, okay, so be it. Let's figure it out. And yeah, we just kept talking. <laughs> but, but I hit the stop button, so who knows what happened after that. Okay. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>